Welcome to the Sam Inshu podcast, where we talk to Sam Inshu's finest about martial arts, training, and life's smaller questions. In this conversation, we talk to Sensei Chris Perry about treating sparring as a laboratory, a secret to spinning kicks, bushwhacking, and adventuring in Nepal, making hard decisions, and finding the wow moments in life. This conversation is brought to you by Sensei Chris Perry. Who wants to ask you, what do you value most? So I, I want to start with my, uh, I guess, uh, thank you for the things you taught me while you were in Samingshu, right? The, the, the one thing that, so there are three things, actually more than three things, but I want to start with my, the, you taught me like how to, when you look at a class, right, with students, right, how do you monitor, how do you see, like, individuals so you taught me how to like basically to disperse your view of you uh-huh i'm not sure if you remember that but if you basically taught me say you just instead of looking at everybody and like focus on individually you basically like uh pick a point like a dot in a in a general yeah. area of the class and then that way you can just disperse your view somehow mm-hmm. right Yes, the diffuse gaze where you can relax your eyes and see everything at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so right now I've been doing that too. I said, like, oh, Sensei. Every time I do that, I said, like, oh man, thank you, Sensei Chris. <laughs> we can pass that up the ladder. I got that from Sensei Tanner. Ah. It's interesting because I first learned it as a tool for sparring. Because ah. it's like, you know, if you're sparring with somebody, you don't need details. Like, I don't need to see you know, what your hand looks like. I don't need to know if you have nail polish on or how hairy the back of your hand is. I just need to know that a thing is coming from this direction and I should block it. Mm -hmm. I don't need my focused vision. I just need my kind of generalized peripheral vision. So when you diffuse your gaze, you can say like, it's coming from over here or a kick is coming from that way Mm -hmm. as opposed to like a red boot on Shu's foot is coming up this way and it's wrinkling his pants. That's (laughs) superfluous data. (laughs) <laughs> I only need foot and direction. Yeah. And then you kind of spread that out to anything where you have to focus on a big picture without details. Uh, so I actually, I used it a lot when um, I was teaching students on a playground and like I had to be aware of all of these kids on a playground. Yeah. So you can kind of diffuse your gaze and be like, okay, there's a couple kids playing basketball and then these kids are climbing on the climbing gym. Oh, and that kid just pushed that kid then my focus goes over there. And I'm like, okay, now I know who it is and I can see what's happening. Uh, but before that, I just needed the general data of what are all these children doing around here. Okay, wow. Well, I feel like that, that philosophy can apply to many other things as well, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's just a great way to see hmm. whatever you're dealing with. Like start big, zero in when you need it. Nice, all right. Let's zero into sparring. Now how? Mm. What, what, what do you focus on? You're saying that you, you disperse view, but where do you put what? So you don't focus on anything on your body and mm. body and all? Okay. Yeah, you, if you focus in on one point, you'll miss the other thing. So if I'm like, I'm really watching your hands, I'm not going to catch your feet. Mm. Or if I'm really focused on, you know, where your head's going, like a lot of, I don't know if you've experienced this, but a lot of people are head hunters when they spar. Yeah. I really want to punch you or kick you in the head. Yeah. And they miss the fact that the body and the legs and the groin are all open targets. So they're just mm-hmm. thinking about the head. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so that's where that diffuse gaze comes from. Is there any practice you can 
I suggest people to do to develop that. I feel like sometimes you just like, it might be hard to do in the beginning, right? For so I think one of the best drills for practicing your um, diffuse gaze is a speed drill. It's just like a raw speed drill. Yeah. And you get with a partner and uh, one person has a pad yeah. and the other person is trying to punch the pad and you're trying to move the pad to dodge their punch. And you're training how fast that person can move but the person with the pad is training how to look at the whole body and look for a tell. Because usually when somebody punches, what you want is your fist to move first if you're going for speed. Mm. But a lot of times people will shrug a shoulder or move a knee a little bit mm. or kind of scrunch their face up just a little bit. Yeah. And so there's always something their body's going to do right before they move, but you don't know what it is. So if I pick your feet and you scrunched your face up, I'm going to miss it. But if I look at all of you in a general sense and I go, his face moved, I'm going to dodge. Uh. It a lot of times is the person with the pad moves it. And then the person who's punching goes and they like do a half punch and they realize they got dodged before they even started punching, uh. which <laughs> it's a pretty great moment to watch someone go and get like half a punch off and then realize Oh wow! You really had my number that time. <laughs> so, so the person practicing the uh, gaze dispersion is the person holding a pad, right? So I yes. And the person punching is just practicing how to be as relaxed and still as possible before they move. Uh, so you both get to practice different, really important skills. But if I'm holding a pad, I, if I see, I just move the pad somewhere. Yeah, you just like. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. And the one thing you can't do is the person who's punching can't try to fake you out. That okay. kind of eats the whole drill. Ah, okay. Faking out is bad. It's just not useful in that drill. Ah, I see. All right. So one more thing about sparring. Uh, I'm going to move on because I, I, I mean, there's so much thing I can talk to you just listening to you talk about sparring drills, right? Well, so uh, one thing about, <laughs> so one thing I learned from sparring, just sparring with you is that you do like, punch, punch, and then sometimes you just throw a very straight, like, almost like a wing chunk kick in the middle uh -huh. with someone's stomach. So I was like, that's the first time I experienced it when I was sparring with you. Right? I was like, oh, where's that come from? I said, oh, where'd that come from? That's another <laughs> straight, right? Now you just punch, punch, and then just kick into my stomach. I was like, wow, okay. Actually, since then, I have actually stole it from you. Now I'm doing it myself. Every time I just do that, just punch, punch, and then just kick in the middle. And I, where did that come from for you? Um, hmm. So it's like one, two, and it's like a front snap kick or like a stamp kick? I feel like it's almost like a Wing Chun stamping kick, like but okay. in the stomach. So it's not really, I, and it's, it could be a snap kick, kick, but I interpret it almost like a, just like a stamp, a stamp kick. kick. I'm not sure where I picked that up specifically. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, I think one of the things that that comes from is, uh, and if it doesn't come from this, I'm going to relate it to this idea because I think it's a great idea. Okay. It's um, something that I picked up from Shihan Josh Mori, which mm. is how you think about sparring. Because mm. a lot of times we think about it either as a game or as a competition. Mm. But if you think about it instead as a laboratory, it's a place to test things out, you can get a lot of new techniques and new ideas out of it. So it could have been that I was just like, I've not done one, two straight kick to the center. Like I, if I hadn't done that before, it's time to test it out and see if it works. Mm. 
Mm. And then you spend, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months working this combo and see who does it work on? Like maybe it works really well on shoe, but if I try to use this on Rachel, she's like, oh, I have your number. And she just gets out of the way and hits me. So you take a new idea and you work it with lots of different people and you see what works, what is ineffective, who does it work against? And afterwards you come out with this kind of rounded technique where you know where it's effective and ineffective, and then you kind of add it to your bag of tricks. Mm. And then you go, okay, what's the next thing we want to try out in the lab? So sparring becomes this place to investigate the techniques you know, as opposed to a place to just compete and play, which is not bad. I love both of those. But treating it like a lab is going to really expand your sparring repertoire. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, uh, that is a great uh, idea. It's also, I mean, remind me of the stuff that I'm learning right now, and I am trying to learn uh, things about business, entrepreneurship, Right, and I'm doing like uh, experiments in my lab as well. I feel like scientific method is almost like the key idea. Yeah. Of, uh, you can apply it to everything, right? Life, business as well, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, you have an idea and hey, uh, you want to test it out with actual customers, right? And then you do experiment to test it out. So it's like same thing, you like treating a sparring in like, your know, environment as a testing, basically treating everything as an experiment, right? So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It's awesome. It'll really, I would suggest it for everybody. It'll grow your whole sparring repertoire and make it so much more fun because you're always kind of working towards a new idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Going back to the, to the Josh Morris, uh, uh, his idea of treating as a game, game mm-hmm. competition, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, he, he was the one who introduced me to the idea of the laboratory. Okay. I think I usually had thought about it as a game or a competition and I was like, Oh, laboratory. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> all right. All right. So that's good. So another thing that there's so many things. Uh, so another thing you taught me is how to project my voice. I know uh-huh. I think in, in one class I was helping out with the kids class and then you just took me to the side after the class and Hey, you need to know how to project your voice. Or you just give me, you just, you just, uh, taught me your exercise basically you I was on the other side of the dojo you were only totally on the other side and you just you just like ha- asked me to I tell you like call out like drills like techniques for you to do all mm-hmm. the way across the dojo so so yeah anyway so just want to I guess thank you for doing that <laughs> so for oh. <laughs> my voice yeah that's I'm trying to remember that moment I feel like it's interesting because you know you bring that kind of stuff up and I think about it and a lot of times drink things like that yeah. are something that I've just come up with on the spot and yeah. I don't think I've ever done that again, but oh, I'm gonna, okay. thank you for reminding me cause I'm going to use that again. Awesome. There are a number of folks who I think need to work on projecting their voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're teaching classes, right? So yeah. Mm-hmm. Got to have that, that loud voice. Yeah. 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 Anyway. When I was in a high school, I did theater and that helped a lot. My acting teacher was always like, you got to be louder. The whole audience has to hear you. Ah, so I okay. to be all serious and whispery when I was talking. And he was <laughs> like, that's fine, but nobody's going to hear what you're doing on stage. So Yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. All right. So now, so many other things I need to thank you. But anyway, last thing that is about, we're going to just to uh, Hillbilly Allergy. Have uh-huh. you heard that? I have read that book. Yeah, he, he, actually, you were the one that introduced me to that book. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I think we were enemies, and we were just talking about something, and you were talking about a book. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So do you do you read a lot? I do read a lot. I um I try to read every night, and oh. I kind of I vacillate between um like science. Right now, I'm really into science fiction. I've been reading a lot of science fiction books, and I read those, and then I read kind of history or biographies of people mm. and a lot of times the history i'm interested in is kind of really dark and intense and so i can't do a whole lot of it before i need to switch over to kind of lighter science fiction kind of fun stories just because you know there's only so much you can read about the terrible moments in history before it gets kind of emotionally overwhelming what kind of dark history you are reading oh, oh man <laughs> um well so I recently, the last couple books I read, one I read was um, like a very, very in-depth account of Gandhi's life when he was in South Africa. Mm. That one wasn't super dark. That was just really dense because mm. it's all based on primary sources from when Gandhi is in South Africa. Because mm -hmm. a lot of, um, you know, Gandhi's autobiography talks about him in South Africa from the view of Gandhi as an old man. He's kind of looking back on his life. And so you get the, you know, the lens of Gandhi's life looking back at South Africa. Whereas this book looks at contemporary accounts from people around him. Mm. So it's newspaper articles and letters that friends wrote to him. And it's interesting to see his progression from, you know, just a lawyer from India into kind of one of the most important figures in world history and like, how do you become that and what formed him into this man? Mm. And so that, I mean, it was a very, very slow read. I'm <laughs> not gonna pretend that I was like blazing through it. It took me months to read it just cause it's so dense. Yeah. And it's like, there's a lot of, you know, here's a page and a half of an excerpt from a newspaper in 1904. Yeah. And so, you know, reading this ancient, not ancient, but kind of that old style English writing Mm. kind of deciphering what they're talking about. So what that, right yeah, what help you to power through power you through those kind of books and like those slow uh, dense books? Like what drive you? Is it um hmm. I think it's a an appreciation for kind of the depth of knowledge they give you. Because mm. it's you know it's really easy to read an overview of something and get a general idea of it. Mm. But when you really dig in deep, there's a more fundamental understanding of kind of the human component. Because mm. it's really easy to kind of gloss over history as these big events and ideas and just think, oh, of course, you know, there was a large scale revolution in India because you had this amazing leader and it inspired the people and now they have their own government. But like what makes a single person say, I'm going to leave my wife and my kids in India and then I'm going to go get put in jail for months at a time over and over again in another country. Mm -hmm. Like when you reflect back on yourself, you're like, how long would I leave my family to go to jail? <laughs> and the answer is not very long. <laughs> yeah. What inspires a person to do something like that? Mm. And it's only those in-depth dives into kind of, who they are and the people around them that can even start to help you understand who they could be to be that type of person. Mm. Okay. And these human components, like what are you trying to get 
get out of the these? Um, well, that one was, it actually tied in really nicely with a lot that was going on in my life at the time. I read this over the last probably six months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with the coronavirus pandemic, I, I actually, uh, I resigned from my job as being a school teacher mm. a few weeks ago. Mm. But before I resigned, I, um, I was a union member and participated in a number of protests against the uh, school district mm. because for a lot of reasons, I had issue with what the school di district was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of them, we had a big virtual work day where a group of us didn't go into school because we felt that it was unsafe and we taught from home. Mm -hmm. But it was a pretty small group and we all got suspended from work for five days and we had our pay docked and they were, they were actually threatening to fire us, but they decided not to fire us. But it was like, in the, I was in the process of kind of standing up to what I felt was an unjust and dangerous administration. Yeah. And so while I'm doing this, I'm reading about Gandhi, who's doing way more than I ever did. Like, I'm not <laughs> trying to compare myself to Gandhi, but it was nice to read about a person who had stood up for what he felt was right against incredible hardship. Because mm. it just, it made me feel like as tough as things might get for me, if I'm following what I believe and making the choices that I think are just, mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. Mm. And so it was kind of, it almost served as both an inspiration and an insight into how you should think about protesting against what you see as injustice. Oh, nice, nice. Now, did you pick it, pick it up, pick the book up after? <laughs> I picked the book up because it was on sale and it was a big hardback and I love hardbacks. And it was on sale. <laughs> it was total happenstance. There was no plans there. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, that's, that's how life happens sometimes, right? It just mm -hmm. happens, right? It's a question. So, so, how, um, so how are you dealing with it right now? Like what's, what's the, after you resigned, like what happened? Um, I mean, all of my colleagues were really understanding, which I really appreciated. Um, and I'm, you know, I was sad to leave because I had a lot of students and I had to say goodbye to all of them personally. Mm. So, you know, saying goodbye to 20 something students and their families and saying goodbye to all my colleagues was hard. Mm. But, um, you know, for my safety and for Ming's safety and the safety of everybody else at the dojo, mm, yeah. I felt like it kind of, it had to happen because mm. I had been exposed directly to students who had COVID-19 twice. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I had to quarantine multiple times and multiple people at my school got it. There were teachers who got it, lots of students who got it. Mm -hmm. And the state government was just like, it's fine. Just wow. keep doing it. Yeah. So, uh, wow. yeah, it was, it was a pretty untenable situation, but it's, it's unfair that, you know, teachers are being placed in that position. Yeah. Cause I feel like teachers are actually, you know, one of the least, appreciated uh, population as, as a contributor to the, uh, consider like in the US, right? Consider how much they contribute, right? Based on like the, the life they touch, right? Because the young people, when they are young, right? They are the most influential period in their life. So who are the person that can directly influence them if they are not the teachers, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that, uh, I hope that teachers start getting more appreciation and more pay too. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a big boost in teacher um, commitment and quality if they got reasonable salaries. Yeah, yeah. So what's your so what's your plan now? Now have you? I'm going to work at Unity Martial Arts. I'm back to a full time karate teacher, which okay. I'm very excited about. Nice. nice. Yeah. All it's right. a, kind of rededicating myself to uh, Kung Nu and teaching martial arts, which is okay. going to be great. And okay. it's, uh, we have a lot of really, really strict safety protocols at the dojo. Mm-hmm. So it's a much safer environment. Okay. All right. Nice. So, um, Going back, I mean, talking about martial arts and teaching martial arts, like quick question, how many, how many black belts do you have? Um, <laughs> I have, I should have three, but one has been in the mail for about six months now. Got you, got you. Uh, yeah, I have my black belt in Kung Nu, which I got in um, 2009. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got my black belt in Ryuhu Kempo in... 2018 gosh time is so tough right now yeah. <laughs> yeah and then i got my black belt in small circle jiu-jitsu in uh 2019 oh okay nice yeah. and what is what's the ryuku ryuku kempo oh, it's um, an okinawan style of karate mm-hmm. that focuses on um kyusho jitsu which is pressure point fighting and yeah. tuite jitsu which is um joint locking Okay. Okay. What's and small circle jujitsu? How how is small circle jujitsu different from regular jujitsu? Like so, um, uh, so there's well, there's Japanese jujitsu and then there's um Brazilian jujitsu. Yeah. And Japanese jujitsu has you know a long history that runs back to samurai and fighting with swords and a lot of like judo and aikido branch off of Japanese jujitsu. Mm-hmm. They're kind of taking the Japanese jiu-jitsu techniques and making them less deadly and less destructive. And Brazilian jiu-jitsu is actually an offshoot of judo. So it's like Japanese jiu-jitsu, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so, you know, that's like a super oversimplification of the history. And I'm sure there's somebody out there listening now being like, well, hold on now. (laughs) So I'm sorry if I got some of that wrong, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu is taking the ne-waza or the ground fighting of judo mm-hmm. and kind of making that the whole thing. So it's all about, you know, submissions on the ground. Mm-hmm. Japanese jiu-jitsu is kind of like a stand-up grappling art that includes throwing and getting to the ground, but your goal is to break and destroy your opponent as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a sport. Mm-hmm. It's just about destroying. And small circle jiu-jitsu is... Um, Professor Wally J um, created small circle jiu-jitsu in like the 50s and 60s. And he's taking a lot of the big circular movements that are in jiu-jitsu and shrinking them down. Mm. And so this small circle is the idea. It's actually, it'd be better to call it a collapsing circle or a spiral. Mm -hmm. But you're taking somebody and you're collapsing into these little circles as you do your different joint locks or techniques Mm. to... um, create maximum pain with the least amount of effort. It's again, that um, minimum input, maximum output idea. <laughs> nice. nice. And he also, there's also a lot of really great finger locks in small circle jujitsu, which is something that didn't show up very much in um, older styles of Japanese jujitsu. Uh, 
Do you have an example of applying a small circle to like, for example, like in country we do the color gash? You know, yeah, the rest, yeah. How small circle philosophy apply to that? So, um, you know, when we do bent wrist, we have this big movement and the goal is to maintain length in someone's arm, right? Uh, yeah. Trying to pull them off balance uh, and execute the technique while they're off balance that way. Yeah. Small circle, instead of extending them out, you're mm -hmm. collapsing the technique into their core. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm showing you things in my arm right now that if you're just yeah. listening, you can't see. But as you apply the Kodagash or the bent wrist or the wrist turn throw, you would be corkscrewing it into the center mm. and that would make the person fall directly in place as opposed to being pulled off balance. Uh, so you, you're, not, you're, you're not stepping back and trying to extend against the out. You actually kind of almost like closing a little. Yeah. You're very close. Okay, so you're very close. With big idea. I'm sorry, what's not? Forward pressure. Like you're always kind of pushing in on somebody, taking uh -huh. their space, collapsing them. Oh, nice. Okay. So, uh, going back out a little bit now, how did you decide to, like, cross-training? In Kanu, we always encourage cross-training, but mm -hmm. how did you make a decision to study the Riku Kempo and uh, a small circle jiu-jitsu? How did you choose those? Well, I met this girl, and she was pretty nice. Uh -huh. better before. Her name is Ming. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... You know, she was in Atlanta, and I was in Little Rock, and she actually found um, Shihan Josh Mori's school and started training with him. Mm. And when I moved back to Atlanta to get my master's, and also to uh, be around Ming a little more, mm, of course, I decided to start training with her. So she is the reason that I got into that. So okay. I, can't, I can't claim that I went out and discovered that. That's on I her. I see, yeah. I followed in her footsteps. I see, I see, nice. It's a good following. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very glad that she, uh, she found Shihan Josh Moore. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, what about Kenpo? Is it? Uh, Kenpo is kind of a generalized term for self-defense. Yeah. There's a million different types of Kenpo in the world. Mm. So if you ever see Kenpo, it's just like I see. general self-defense arts. And it can be lots of kicking and punching. There can be throwing. There can be locking. It just depends on the lineage and who's teaching it. I see. So did, did you follow Ming into that or did you choose that yourself? Uh, I followed Ming into uh, that because the Ryuku Kempo and the small circle yeah. are both underneath uh, Shihan Josh. Oh, okay. So nice. he teaches both of them kind of in parallel. Got you. Nice, nice. Now, any, any plan for next Black Bell? Yeah. I would love to... Um, get a black belt in judo uh. and I've been training in judo in Little Rock although uh, I kind of had to stop when the pandemic started mm -hmm. judo is not a great uh, socially distanced martial art <laughs> yeah. yeah but um I've been training at a school here and it's it's pretty awesome the guy who runs it is like a very high level judo competitor mm -hmm. and so it's very much focused on the sport side of judo. Like what are the most effective techniques? How do you get stronger and faster and really, you know, take somebody out real quick. Mm -hmm. And it's a very different mindset because like most of my martial arts training has been the um, like personal growth, self betterment, a lot of the spiritual side. And then training with Shion Josh, there's the inclusion of like the combative self-defense stuff. Mm -hmm. This is very much like here are the rules of this sport. 
And you need to get really, really good at these very specific things to make sure you can score the points and take somebody down and do the stuff you need to win the match. Mm. I've just never thought of martial arts like that before. Okay. But it's an interesting new way to approach training. Mm. It's less of, I mean, there's personal growth involved, but it's less about that kind of personal betterment and more about training a skill so you can defeat others. Mm. Yeah, no. No, you are moving from the game aspect to the competition mindset. You know what? Yeah, and I've never done that before. So, um, oh, really? in my mind, like, I, my plan was to do a judo competition at some point this year. Obviously, that didn't work out. Yeah. But um, it's just, I every time I think about it, I'm always like, well, I could win or lose, but as long as me and my opponent have a good time, yeah. And like, that's really not how you're supposed to think about a competition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's like an interesting mindset shift that I don't think I've I've gotten to do competitive martial arts yet. Are you a competitive? Not yet, but are you a competitive person? Um, yes. If oh. you ever played a board game with me, I am very competitive. Oh, so how? So why are you not having a competitive mindset when you get into the judo? Mostly because like my martial arts training has never been competitive. It's always been about group growth and personal growth. It's never been about competition. Mm. And so my competitive nature has always come out in different places, usually in board games or video games. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was a time period I was pretty serious, a uh, StarCraft II player. And uh, there's like a, a very, very competitive online component to that. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I'd like research how to play better and train specific movements and like work and work and work to try to get better at that. And uh -huh. that was where a lot of my competitive energy went. Oh, nice, nice. Are you still playing it? Uh, not so much now. It's hard to find the time. Mm, gotcha. And also, um, it can get to your wrists when you play a little too much. Oh, yeah, and a couple of tunnels stuff? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's carpal tunnel, but it's certainly like my wrist and elbow will get sore when I play a lot. Because you're like... Oh. You know, hey, that, that sounds like a good workout for your arm. If <laughs> you yeah. one super swollen arm, my pointer finger is going to be so strong from clicking. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, cool. So now I want to actually go back to your life story a little bit. Uh huh. Like, uh, what were you? What, what did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta. I was born and raised there. Ah. Mm -hmm. Nice. And is that how you get into Summing Shoe? Yeah, so I um the reason I started training at Summing Shu was because Tanner, uh, Sensei Tanner Kreitz, came to my elementary school, and we had this thing um, at the end of every semester in elementary school. We had something called short term, which was like one month of just fun, interesting, different classes, and you could do everything from like racing RC cars to wilderness survival to rocketry. It was really cool. Yeah. And one of the options was um, something about martial art. I remember it was like martial arts with heart. And it was somehow talking about the philosophy component of Kung Nu and the martial arts component. And I was like, that seems interesting. And so I did this martial arts class with Sensei Tanner for a month in sixth grade and was totally sold. I was like, this is amazing. This is a cool <laughs> thing. And so... I decided that I wanted to start martial arts and my parents were actually really, really skeptical about it uh, because everybody my age was doing soccer. That was like yeah. the thing to do. And I was like, you know what? I want to quit soccer where all my friends are. 
and I want to go do karate where I don't know anybody. And yeah. it seems like it's just mostly adults. Yeah. And so they're like, all right, we'll try it out. And so the old Sun Ming Shu Dojo, I don't know if you ever went to the old dojo location yeah. um, on Elizabeth Street. Yeah. Right now there's like all these apartments there and there's all these restaurants. It used to be an empty lot, an old rundown looking brick building, and then a overpass. And it was just overgrown under the overpass. So it was like, this doesn't seem safe at all. <laughs> you pull down this back alleyway and it's just this like rundown looking brick building and there's broken windows and there's some graffiti and you're like, we're mm -hmm. next to an empty lot and an overpass. And my parents are looking at me, what are you doing? Why would you want to do this? And so we go in and immediately, you know, I love it. It's awesome. But apparently I didn't know this at the time, but my parents pulled Tanner aside and talked to him about it. We're like, now our son is quitting all the social activities he wants to do to do this thing with you. So we just want to check in. Like, is this okay? Is he going to, you know, is this going to stunt him socially? Mm -hmm. Tanner assured them it was going to be okay. And look at me now. <laughs> Yeah. So, so how how did you what draw you draw draw you to the? I feel like that's a very hard, almost a very big decision, right? How how did you what draw to you at that time? What draw you to martial art at that time? Um, I think it was just like the little boy fantasy of being an awesome ninja. <laughs> I just wanted to be super tough and this unstoppable martial arts badass like that's what i really wanted it's like this is it i'm gonna be doing flying kicks and flipping over people and like chopping people and just i could take on a whole host of enemies uh. i don't think it was anything beyond that and it was after training for years and years that i realized there was so much more to martial arts yeah so in the beginning you mentioned you saw something that reason like martial art and and Heart, right? Yeah, I and think you, so. I had to ask Tanner if that was and you, really are you Are you talking about the philosophy aspect? But you were like 10, sixth grade was almost like 10, 11 years old. Yeah. Right? So you, because you mentioned philosophy, so I'm curious, were you into philosophy at that time? How? Um, you know, I honestly think the heart part, the philosophy made me a little bit less interested in it at the time. Because oh, it was like, you know, I knew I was interested in martial arts mm. and I was kind of like, mm, do I want to sign up? Like, cause you know, my other options were like racing RC cars and rocketry. Yeah. And so I was a little worried that, cause you would rank your choices for these short-term classes. I was a little worried if I put it on my list, I would get put into the class and I'd miss out on the, the ones that all the cool kids wanted to do. Yeah. But I'm very glad that I went ahead and put it on my list. Mm, okay, okay. Wow. And also like so so that class is not an official summing shoe class, right? It was before you joined summing shoe, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you remember your how how the class was was like? Um the things I remember are there's two things that stand out. Yeah. One was Sensei Tanner breaking a board with a wheel kick but he just set it on the bleachers. He just balanced it on the end on the bleachers. Nobody was holding it. And he just wheel kicked the board. And I was like, that was amazing. And the other one was, um, he did, I think it was his black belt demo or maybe his Shodan demo. Mm. I want to say it was his black belt demo, mm. um, with 
Sensei Jeremy, uh, Sensei Carlos, and Sensei Julie Graniker. He brought the three of them in and did a demo and was like throwing them on the ground and doing stuff with bows and tambos. I was like, what? This is so cool. I gotta be able to do that. Ah, nice. Seeing it in action, I think, was the thing that really made me want to do it. Okay, nice, nice. Okay, I understand it better now. So going back to Atlanta a little bit, now, do you have a favorite place in Atlanta? Ooh. Where you grew up? Favorite place in Atlanta. That's tough. Mm. There's like, you know, there's, I have so many memories from Atlanta of growing up and all these different experiences. I don't want to say I have a favorite place, mm-hmm. but um, I did love, as a teenager, I did a lot of just roaming around the neighborhood mm-hmm. and kind of like urban exploration stuff. Mm. So me and my buddies would bike or walk around and, you know, we did some pretty ridiculous stuff. Like we ended up in the uh, storm drain system under Emory. Okay. Like crawled through all these storm drains, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. All right. A little scary, but pretty awesome. Yeah. And then, um, you mean, at the you, mean, you, mean like, you, mean like, you mean like those teenage Ninja Turtles? Yes. It was very <laughs> teenage Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and then, um, there's a, uh, the Briarcliff campus of Emory, mm. right at um, right where Briarcliff and uh, East Rock Springs intersect, a mm. little bit south on Briarcliff, there was this old mansion that was like the Coca-Cola mansion, mm-hmm. and we um, we went in there. We like snuck in there once to check it out, and of course we tripped a silent alarm, and the cops showed up. <laughs> Not great, but they let us go with just a warning. That was nice. They thought we had cut the lock, but we didn't have any um, lock bolt cutters. Uh-huh. They, they believed us, which was true. Someone okay. else cut the lock, and we just kind of walked in to peek around. Ah, uh, okay. And so there was all, just like a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I did a whole video in a high school where we like walked around on the MARTA tracks, mm-hmm. like the train tracks in my neighborhood. We followed them for like five or six miles, and you know like trains were going by and we had to get off the tracks and kind of like watch this long train go by and mm-hmm. walk around all these industrial parts of Atlanta. Probably not safe, but really fun. <laughs> wow. Well, where did that idea come from? Um, where did that idea come from? You know what it was? I really love maps. Like I really love looking at maps and especially satellite maps. And so I was just like looking at a satellite map of the train track. And I was like, you know, I cross this train track all the time, yeah. but I've never gone down it in either direction. Mm-hmm. And so like, let's go find out. And so I like traced it on the, the map to be like, okay, you know, where would we need to get to, to do this? Or like, what could we explore here? Mm-hmm. And so a buddy of mine, like we found a point that we wanted to get off and we parked his car there. Mm. And then we drove back and then we walked to the train track all the way to his car. Mm. Which was Yeah, did you <laughs> which is what? It was a good time. Ah, oh, nice. It's actually I made a whole video, it was like a twelve minute video. I think it's still on my Facebook of the whole process. Oh yeah. Really? I set it to music and had a whole soundtrack. It's all very melodramatic. <laughs> nice. Is it on YouTube as well? Probably not. I think this was uh before YouTube got big. Mm. I was, gosh, this would have been in 2008. 
I see. So why did you want to, you want to document the event? That's why you shoot a yeah. video? Actually, I, I managed to spin it into a project for school. I had a postmodern literature class. Uh -huh. I was like, well, I'll just make this my project for my postmodern literature class. Oh, nice. Perfect. Yeah. Well, now you are in Little Rock. Do you have a favorite, favorite place in Little Rock? Favorite place in Little Rock? Um, there's a couple places. One is there's a little park in our neighborhood called um, Noop Park. Uh-huh. And it's a place that, um, you know, when I first was going to Little Rock in the summers to work with uh, Tanner and do the summer camps, mm. we would always take the kids up there and have these like epic sword fights. And New Park has this great overlook where you can see the whole city and you can see the river and the bridges over the river. Mm. And it's just a beautiful spot. Yeah. So close by. It feels like this great overlook over the whole city of Little Rock. Mm-hmm. Oh. And then you go down to the bridges. The bridges are just beautiful. There's this great park where you can walk along the river and all the bridges get lit up at night by all these lights. Mm -hmm. That's pretty nice. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. I haven't been to Little Rock, so that's I'm, <laughs> Hey, I'm in the guest bedroom right now. All right, all right, right there. Right here, come visit. Okay, awesome. We do, we do. <laughs> that's one reason I want to talk to you so I can get, uh, you know, a place to stay. I see how it is. Clever. Yeah. <laughs> Quote unquote podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So do you have a favorite memory from your childhood besides the story you told me already? <laughs> favorite memory from my childhood. Are we thinking martial arts related or not martial arts? Related? Anything, yeah. Oof. Favorite memory. Um, I'm going to stick with martial arts on this one. Okay. Not because I feel like I should, but because it's probably one of the strongest memories that stands out to me. Um, when I got my brown belt. Mm. So I remember, you know, I'd been training with Tanner for a long time. And I trained under a number of other senseis as well. Sensei Julie, uh, Sensei Gordon. Mm -hmm. Sensei Gordon. Mm -hmm. um, but Tanner had kind of been my, like, main sensei. Yeah. And as we got ready for our brown belt tests, I remember him talking in class about how, you know, for this test, you need to buy your own brown belt because you kind of start to get to take control of your own training and choose, you know, what kind of belt you want to have. And so everyone's going out and buying their brown belts. And I'm, I go to him, I'm like, hey, you know, like, where's a good place to buy a brown belt? He's like, oh, don't worry, I got yours. Mm. I was like, okay, all right. Because <laughs> he, he had done a whole spiel about how we should pick our own. And I was like, yeah. But, you know, I was a teenager, so I was like, sure, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, I take the test and um, I passed. Woo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I get up there to get promoted and he pulls out this brown belt and it's like kind of old and beat up and it's huge. It's <laughs> way too long for me. Yeah. And as he's putting the brown belt on, he's like, I want you to know, like, you're my first student to reach brown belt. And this is my old brown belt. Like that was the brown belt that he wore. And so he was giving it to me and he was like, you know, when you get to have a student who you train from white belt all the way up to brown belt, you're going to pass this belt on to them as well. Mm. And so I was like, I'd never had somebody just like both place a great responsibility on me like that, but also place such a serious honor on me. I was like, 
you know, this is someone who I look up to and I work hard to train with and like his teaching me and all these other people. And I'm the one who gets his brown belt. Mm. And I definitely, like, I remember I cried at that test. I was like, oh. <laughs> it was a pretty powerful moment. Yeah. I, I still have not gotten to pass it on yet. So um, mm. if you're out there, person in Little Rock who doesn't do Kung Nu, yeah. if you come and start training as a white belt and I'm your first teacher, you could get that belt. Yeah, yeah. Shameless plug. Awesome. All right, all right. Oh, people in Atlanta can travel to Little Rock. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got to start as a white belt, though. You can't come as a green belt. Got you, got you. All right. I guess I'm too late then. <laughs> no, sorry. Let's <laughs> start over. Let's back down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, who's the most influential person in your life? Hmm. The most influential person in my life. Well, I'm going to have to bar my parents just because, like, you know, your parents are almost always going to be the most influential people in your life. And just to give a, a wonderful shout-out to them, I feel like my mother has given me an incredibly strong sense of morals. Mm -hmm. Like, she is uncompromising about what she believes is right. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to, you know, have that line and say, I can't compromise these morals. So I feel like I've gotten that from her. And my father has given me a, a deep appreciation of things that are beautiful. You know, he's a, an art, he's a lighting designer, but he really appreciates art and has kind of taught me how to see the things in the world that are worth seeing mm -hmm. and taking the time to look at things that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, it's definitely Sensei Tanner. I mean, he's been a teacher and a mentor and a friend to me for so long since I was, you know, just started Kung Nu when I was 11. Mm. It's always been kind of this figure that shows me like how, how to push for the things that you want and how to include other people in that process. Mm. He's built up this whole community here in Little Rock and it's always, he says, you know, this is the thing that I think is valuable and that I want how can I get there and how can I bring other people with me? Mm. It's always about including others in your dream as opposed to achieving your dream over other people. Mm. Okay. Wow. I, yeah, I think, so how do you, I guess I never expect not to bring people, other people uh, uh, like with you along with your dream. Right. So it's always like, oh, you want, you have a dream, you want to go for it. But I guess most people don't really think about bringing other people along with mm -hmm. right? So I guess how, how, how do you do that? How do you bring people around with you in the journey? Uh -huh. I mean, I think the first step is honesty about what you want and what you're trying to do. Okay. Because, you know, people can pretty quickly sniff out falsehoods. So if you just come to them and say, this is what I truly believe and this is what I want to create, the people who want to do it with you will just stay with you. Mm -hmm. And not everyone's going to join you and that's totally okay. Uh, not everybody shares that idea. But if you have a bigger image of something that you want and you put it out there and people like it, they're going to participate with you. And as long as you keep putting in the effort, people are going to stay a part of it. And maybe they're not as into it as you, you know, maybe some people dedicate themselves to it fully and other people are just tangentially interested. 
they think, Hey, you're doing a cool thing. I want to be a part of it for a little bit. Mm. But it's, um, I think that honesty is a key component. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And do you have anything that you want to create right now or in the future that you want to? Yeah. Um, I have like a, I have a couple really large absurd dreams that I don't know if, uh, I could pull off, but I'm never say never. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the big things that I'm really interested in right now is something called rewilding. If you're okay. familiar with the concept. No. So rewilding is taking land that is not wilderness and turning it back into wilderness. Oh. Because, you know, conservation is about preserving the land that we have. Mm. And it's, constantly getting shaved away every year a little bit more forest gets cut down a little bit more wilderness gets turned into you know rural areas or urban areas we're always destroying a prairie to make a farm Mm -hmm. and so if we just focus on conservation it's just going to mean that we're going to slow down this inevitable crush of the wilderness oh yeah but if you say let's just do it in reverse let's you know take this old farmland that maybe no one's using or maybe someone is using, but you can buy it from them and then convert it back into the land it was before. That can be a habitat for different species and increase the biodiversity in the area. That's something that I would really like to kind of be able to facilitate or create. And there's a number of different ways that I'm thinking about it. Mm. The most direct way would be to try to save up money and just buy some land that's not wilderness and turn it back into wilderness. which I think is something that at some point in my life in the next probably 10 to 20 years, I would like to do. Mm. Just want to buy a piece of land that's farmland and then not farm anything, just slowly turn it back into kind of its native habitat. Mm-hmm. But then beyond that, um, so I, my brother-in-law and I are both very interested in vertical farming. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with vertical farming? Um, a little bit, but not a lot. So it's the idea of you're growing things inside mm-hmm. and when you grow them inside, you can grow them in stacks. Yeah. And that means that, you know, an acre of land can be compressed into a couple hundred square feet. If it's stacked, if you have 40 different plants growing vertically, suddenly you need 40 times less land to mm-hmm. grow those plants. Yeah. Now the issue is energy. It's very energy intensive because you need lights and you got to temperature control it. You got to have the hydroponic systems to run it all. But um, as that becomes less expensive, as we get clean energy, as people get more efficient with it, you can take farmland and again, reduce your land impact, which will hopefully free up more land for wilderness restoration. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my brother is, or my brother-in-law is, um, in the world of business and has his own startup and is around that kind of stuff and knows people who have vertical farming companies. And so I am interested in that process. And if at some point in my life I have the time and the energy, I would love to dig into that world. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is a very interesting uh, area. Also innovation in a way, right? To Mm -hmm. uh, do the farm, you still do farming, but you know, do a more like land, more night you don't use so much land so you kind of save the planet as well yeah yeah oh, okay so 
So both of them has the thing almost like conservation, not conservation, more like try to return like the earth into a more natural yeah. environment in a way. But why, 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 why are you interested in that? That actually comes from Sung Ming Shu as well. Right. Um, <laughs> just tie it right back in. So, um, you know, Sensei Jeremy Dahl mm. does um, urban forest restoration and has his nonprofit, the Deep Forest Field School. And so when I was um, 15, I started working for him in the summers and we would go out into, um, you know, pieces of urban forest around Atlanta and we would remove invasive species mm. and try to, again, restore the land back to its natural state. So the goal is to get rid of the plants that aren't from this habitat, you know, English ivy and kudzu and privet and all that stuff. Yeah. And kind of when you get rid of those things, the plants that are supposed to live there are no longer being outcompeted, and it increases the biodiversity and increased biodiversity makes a healthier forest, which has kind of cascading positive effects on everything that comes in contact with it. And so working for Jeremy, he taught me a huge amount about the forest and about kind of understanding nature and ecology on a deeper level. I've always liked being outside in the wilderness, but I didn't really understand it until I got to work in it every day and see how, you know, a place can be affected by the wrong plants growing there or how important these large timescale cyclical processes in a forest are. Mm. So that got me interested in restoration and preservation of nature. Okay. Uh, and it made my grip really strong because I'm constantly chopping with machetes. Oh yeah! Wow! <laughs> wow! Like yeah, that's a that's a one way to practice your martial arts, right? Just keep chopping, right? Yes, my uh, my tambo skills improved greatly. <laughs> five hours, you know, every couple of days, just hacking and hacking and hacking. Yeah, yeah. So that's your right hand. Did you try to switch up to your left hand as well? Yeah, my uh, my right hand would get tired, so I did a fair amount of left hand chopping too. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. Not as good as the right hand. It's always kind of a little bit weaker and less focused, but yeah, I still I make sure to practice with the left too. All right, all right, perfect, awesome. So speaking of summing shoe, I guess, uh, do you remember your first uh, first day or week night training in summing shoe? Yeah. So Julie Graniker was my first teacher at summing shoe, and she was a two brown stripe at the time, green belt with two brown stripes. And um, I remember I came in. And I had a um, an and one hoodie on. It's like a basketball brand. I, and it was a black hoodie and it had red on the inside. Mm. And I remember, um, I think it was Julie explained how when you get your black belt, you know, your belt is black and then you're adding these red stripes. And, you know, it's like 11. And when you're 11, you kind of create a little fantasy world in your head. And so I remember thinking, oh my gosh, black belt with these red stripes, like that's the symbol of mastery and understanding. I have a black hoodie with red in it. I must be someone special. Like I must be something awesome to already come in here with black and red on. As, <laughs> as if the colors of my hoodie had any effect on my martial arts abilities. <laughs> but I was totally sold that it, it really meant something. Yeah. Well, you never know. You are what you wear, right? <laughs> exactly. Nice. Perfect. So, so speaking the basketball basketball hoodie. Like, did you play basketball? 
I played one season of basketball when I was eight. And okay. my, my crowning achievement in basketball was um, I would always move my feet too much. And then people, I would stand right in the middle of the lane. And I would move my feet and someone would charge in and they'd run into me and they'd knock me over and they would pull the foul because I was moving. So I would get a foul for something or other. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And my coach was like, Chris, you have to plant your feet or you're <laughs> going to keep drawing these fouls. And so I finally, in like the last game of the one season I played, I planted my feet hmm. and someone just ran into me and they knocked me over and they got the charging foul. Oh, now, I've done it. I stood still and got knocked over. It's my crowning achievement in basketball. Oh, wow. Nice, <laughs> nice. So I didn't, I didn't play basketball anymore after that. It was not my sport. Oh, okay. Did you play other sports? Try other sports? I played a lot of soccer when I was a kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Kind of the main thing. Mm. Um, you know, I tried out a couple of things. I tried swimming and wasn't very good at swimming. Mm. Probably tried tennis. I played a fair amount of tennis, which was fun, but... Once I started doing martial arts, it was like, whew, none of those sports can compare to this. <laughs> this comes with like history and community and all these like big ideas about hard work and growth towards a goal for your whole life. Like there was just so much depth to it that it just seized my brain. Oh, nice. So, um, so talking about the depth of the history, philosophy of Sami Kanyun, like what's, what's your favorite philosophy? Favorite philosophy. For a long time, it was Code of Ethics number seven. The goal of a Kung Nu student is to maintain a pure, simple, sincere, and noble life. Mm. Um, I had that one on my door as a, as a kid. So every time I left my room, I got to read number seven. Um, and like at the core of it, I feel like, you know, there's always the ones that are kind of the bedrock of Kung Nu philosophy. Like the three O's is so important. Mm. And especially the expanded three O's principle, you know, there's the um, overwork, overwhelm, overcome. And then there's open mind, open heart, open arms. And then there's oneness, togetherness, and forgiveness. Mm. You're familiar with the three levels of the three O's. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So like, you know, that's such a bedrock for how you should be as a person. And then the first code of ethics about striving to improve yourself and your abilities in the martial arts in order to serve the people like those two together, I think, make up the most important aspects of Kung Nu philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I do like, like I kind of have a cycling interest in which one I think is the, uh, uh. that just like my brain kind of sticks to. And it's like, this is one I want to think about more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've been, I really, over the past year, I've been enjoying the five V's of poor communication. Five what? Five V's. Okay. A poor communication, which is um, vague, verbose, variable, vacant, and vituperative. Mm -hmm. And um, one, I just love vituperative. It's a great word. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what that means. It's like being kind of really pointedly cruel and insulting, <laughs> which you should definitely never do as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I didn't know what it meant either. When I first read it, I was like, whoa. Yeah. But I just, I like the idea of um, really kind of pinning down what are the things you should avoid when you teach and speak. Mm. Because I think a lot of people fit into one of those categories. Not a lot of vituperativeness in Kung Nu, which is great. <laughs> yeah. But like verbose is a really common one. Mm. And 
you know, I love to talk a bunch. I, you know, I could have a class and be like, I'm just going to blabber on about these techniques forever. Mm. It doesn't help anyone learn because like martial arts is a physical activity. Yeah. And I can tell you, you know, for days and days about how to do this technique and the history of that and how your body should move. And you will get no better at martial arts until you do it. Mm. And so like, being verbose is definitely one I got to look out for. And vacant is a good one too. Like when you're really tired and you've had a long day, it's easy to be like, well, you do kind of one and you're just not paying attention. Yeah. And it's like, you got to be there. You got to focus on the people. So that's just one that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I think is a real valuable one because it doesn't show up too much. It's like a, I think it's for showdown. You need the five V's. Yeah. So it doesn't get talked about as much in class, but it's a really valuable philosophy. So why, why you uh, pay more attention to this particular philosophy right now? Like... Um, well, first, I think I started paying attention to it because I was so excited by the word vituperative. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I've been for the, like the past six months in my life has been so exhausting. Like, I don't think I've ever been this continuously overwhelmed mm. just working in school and then trying to go and teach class at night. And it's like this constant struggle of trying to get all my work done while trying to stay safe at work and then dealing with kind of the political component of disagreeing with the administration and trying to stand up against them and then working at the dojo and or not working at the dojo, but teaching at the dojo. And like my brain was just so maxed out mm. that it was easy for me to fall into one of those five V's. Cause like I just didn't have the wherewithal to stay focused on class. Like I could be verbose or I could be vague, like pretty regularly. I would, I would try to explain something and just come across with these like broad ideas that maybe didn't make a lot of sense and were coming together in all these different ways that didn't quite fit. Mm -hmm. And so it was you know, like a personal reminder when it was, you know, I had to pull my brain back together and be like, look, you don't need to talk a lot. You don't need to explain, like, just get right to it, get people to training and understand that maybe this isn't the time you're going to impart the most wisdom, mm -hmm. but you can still be there as a, a good teacher to get people to focus on their training and work hard. Yeah, yeah. I think one, strike, one thing struck me with your teaching, when, I, when you teach, teach my class, is like, I all, always struck me that you are very good at explaining stuff in very like, specific detail, that, like, almost like, wow, it's, it's like so easy to understand, right? So any mm -hmm. uh, next my impression of your teaching when you teach, uh, so how did you develop that? I picked that up from um, when I was in graduate school mm -hmm. for special education. One of the things we talked about was when you're teaching someone who has a disability, a lot of times you need to break a task that seems like it would be easy into much smaller steps. So the example that was often given was like opening a jar. If I said, shoo, open this jar, you could just open the jar. Yeah. And maybe I show you once and then you open the jar. Yeah. But for someone who has a disability, that process may take a lot more work. Mm. And so you would do what's called a task analysis where you look at the task and you break it down into its individual components. So step one is where are the jars? You got to know where they are. Mm. And step two is opening the cabinet door. And it may be you have to break that down into first you extend your arm 
then you grasp the handle mm. and you pull. So something where initially I just said, oh, you got to open the jar. Now we're talking about the specific movements to open the cabinet before you can get in. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties really well into martial arts because the skills that we teach in martial arts are all incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. There are very few things that, especially for someone who's just started, you can say, oh, you just do kata one. You just do a flying kick. Yeah. There's so many small components to it that need to be taught in an order in a very specific way. And so, you know, some people are able to just figure it out. Some people, they can watch you do it and they have a really good sense of their body and can just figure it out. But some people really need that step-by-step -step analysis. And so the way I think about a lot of teaching is how do I break this down into these tiny little steps? And I usually try to wait and see if someone's struggling. And once they struggle, I'll jump in and really break it down. So if they're having a hard time, let's say I taught someone recently who was struggling with uh, 270 in Kata 1. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I taught was just, you know, stand in forward stance, take your front foot and just cross it behind. And now mm -hmm. step back out and cross and step. And we did that 20 times, just that one movement. Mm -hmm. And then I talked, you know, just spin just spin, just spin. You just take all those components and you repeat it until they're so good at each section of it that when you say, okay, put it all together, they do it all and then go, oh, I've got it. Mm. But it's that, you know, super narrow focus where you say, I know they can achieve this, but I just want them to do this little component of this process. Mm. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Break it down into very, very small detail. So, Yes. When, when you teach a new class, a new kata, right? Mm -hmm. How do you approach that? Is it a similar process or do you do something different? Um, when I'm learning it personally or when I'm teaching it? Teaching, teaching. It depends on the class. Um, oh. Recently, <laughs> I thought... Uh, Let's say it's not a brand new class or something. Yeah. Okay. I think I just did a new way to do it recently that I think I like more than any of the ways I've done it in the past. Um, we were, I was teaching Kanku show to a couple of brown belts. And um, I had been given the task by Sensei Tanner to, who's like, oh, just do Kanku show as a warm up. What's Kanku show? Kanku show is, um, it's the smaller version of Kanku Dai. It's really cool. It's got a lot of cool moves. It's like reinforced middle block, reinforced middle block, reinforced middle block. Right. And it's got some really neat, like circling uh, hand techniques and some really interesting kind of like knuckle rake moves. It's a good one. You should uh, learn it sometime. Is, Come that up kanu, is that Kanu Kata? Um, it's a Shotokan Kata. It used oh. to be in Kanu. There are old videos of people doing Kanku show. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, one of the things we've been doing in advanced class here is kind of looking at a lot of these Katas that used to show up in Kanu but haven't been as much. Uh. So we've been reviewing them and kind of comparing the Kanu way to do it and the Shotokan way to do it. Makes sense. But um, I was tasked with teaching that kata, or actually just doing that kata as a warm-up, mm. but these two brown belts had never done it before. Mm. So, like, how do you use a kata that somebody doesn't know as a warm-up to get them, you know, yeah. muscles warm and get them sweaty? So I would just take one little piece, so again, this task analysis thing, and I would show it to them, and then we just did it over and over. I'd be like, all right, go, go go and we just rep it like 10 times and make, okay, here's the next piece and show just one or two moves 
and they'd do those two moves, and they'd be like, go, 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 and we'd wreck that a bunch. And we'd start over and do the whole kata up to there a couple times. Mm. And so it was really high intensity. Like, it was 30 minutes of nonstop moving. Mm. But we made it through the whole kata in 30 minutes because since my focus was getting them worn out, we got so many reps in so fast. Mm. And I was like, oh, I've never done this before. I think this is a really good way to teach a kata. Because we did the whole kata in 30 minutes. Yeah. They're, you know, they're really hard workers and really sharp students, so they could pick it up fast. So, so do you do like first move, for example, on the first move in the kata, right? First move. So you start with the first move, right? So yeah. you keep repeating it 20 times? Yeah. It was and, like, and this is the first move. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Okay. So do you, do you move on to second move or do you do like first move and the second move and first move and second move together? Or do you do second move 20 it times was, and then move on to third move 20 times? It was more like the second one. You do the second move 20 times and then you do the third move 20 times and then you start over from the beginning and do the first three moves together probably five or six times. Oh, okay. And then, so in the end, do you go... I guess I'm trying to see, do you go like, do you break in down? So do you keep going back to the first move? And then like, once you learn, like maybe in the 10th move, right? Do you going back to the first move and then go from first move to 10th move? Um, I kind of do it by feel, okay. but it would be like, you know, you do the first move, the second move, the third move, you do all three together. Yeah. You do the fourth move, the fifth move, the sixth move, and you do four through six together a couple times. Yeah. And then maybe you do one through six once. Mm -hmm. Then you do seven, eight, nine, ten. Do them a few times. Then maybe do it once from the beginning. Or maybe do it once from move number four. Mm. You want to every now and then touch back to the beginning so they don't forget it. Yeah. You want to make sure you're not over um, practicing just the first moves. Because it's really easy to do the first move a hundred times and the twentieth moves four times. Mm. <laughs> when you want to do both of them the same amount of times. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That's cool. All right. That's a very good teaching uh, technique. So, uh, well, I don't know how it works because I've only done it once now. So <laughs> it needs more uh, testing. <laughs> all right. All right. What other teaching uh, techniques do you use? Um, hmm. I think one of the biggest things that I'm trying to focus on right now is the importance of repetition. Okay. I love talking about things. It's really interesting for me to break them down and compare things and look at all the little details. But again, martial arts is a physical activity. Yeah. And so yeah, I kind of need to put that voice away and just give people the time to practice it over and over again. Mm, okay. And, I mean, this also goes back to my um, graduate school training. There's, so we talked about task analysis, which is breaking things down into all these little bits. Yeah. The other big way of teaching something is what's called shaping. And shaping is you teach someone the whole thing and you understand they're probably going to do it poorly. Mm. And that's fine because they just learned it. Mm -hmm. And you're, it's like they're a big piece of clay and you're slowly shaping it into what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And so you don't give them all the details. So, you know, if you've just learned pin on two, you don't need to make sure like, okay, every back stance, you got to be 90-90 with your feet. And when you do those first moves, they have to be perfect right angles. And you've got to make sure you cross your center line. And then when you do this back fist, pull the elbow down quick and keep the fist. It's like, that's just too much information. Yeah. 
So you just let them work it over and over again and you make one adjustment. You're like, keep checking your back stances. And then once they have the back stances down, change this. And so you're just giving them one thing to work on each time. And when they've got it, you add the next thing and you add the next thing and you add the next thing. Oh, okay. So shaping is almost like concept in like, like doing, what's the clay, like the art thing? Yeah, the yeah, art the, yeah. Uh -huh, the spinning clay. Yeah, yeah, is that, is that the one they try to refer to or something? I think, I think so. That's my guess is where they get the word shaping from. But if okay. it's not, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, could be sculpture too, right? Sculpture. Yes. Yeah, okay. So uh, you were talking about uh, breaking uh, test analysis and shaping. Those are coming from your special education like, uh, experience in grad school. So why did you choose to do special education? Um, I picked special education for a couple reasons. One was I'd worked with a number of students um, who have disabilities at Unity and just enjoyed it a lot. And I kept hearing from a lot of people that I have a huge amount of patience. And apparently that's what you need in the world of special education. <laughs> and it was interesting because in my mind, you know, martial arts is a lifelong pursuit. And so if someone doesn't get something right away, that's totally fine. <laughs> if it takes them six months, that's fine. If it takes them two years, that's still fine. Like you have your whole life to work on these skills. So there's no rush to get them down. <laughs> And special education can oftentimes be the same way. Whereas in, um, you know, the general education curriculum in public schools, like you've got to learn multiplication by the end of third grade. Mm. But in special education, you have much more space to say, okay, we, that's our goal. That we want to work towards that. But it may take a little longer. We can spend some extra time really digging into how to do this thing and how to understand it. So the concept behind the teaching in special ed seemed to fit very nicely into the way I already thought about teaching martial arts. Uh, so that combined with my previous experiences made me say, okay, I could do special ed. And then I also heard that um, it's pretty much guaranteed that you'll get a job as a special ed teacher. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and um, so I have to share this just because I've never had to like apply for a job in the normal way because my whole life I've either been working in karate or working at a university, which is a little different because you're a student yeah. or being a special ed teacher. Yeah. So when I applied for my job in Little Rock as a special ed teacher, I filled out the online application mm. and, um, and there was parts of it that I was missing because I'd been like a non-traditional student. Mm. And I just like, didn't fill those parts in and figured they would call me and ask me questions and I'd explain why I didn't have them and we'd have to, you know, figure some way around it and sort it out. And so I fill out my application. There's stuff missing. I send it in. I get a call the next day and they're like, hey, we got your application. Um, and we'd love to hire you. And I was <laughs> like, oh, wow, that was really fast. <laughs> yeah. And so then they said, well, what do you want to, who do you want to work with? And I was like, what? And they're like, well, do you want high school, middle school, or elementary school? And I was like, well, I'd like elementary school. And they said, well, do you want to be in a self-contained setting or a resource setting? I was like, well, I like resource. And they're like, okay, so um, where would you like to work? And I was like, well, I live here, so I'd like to work around that area. And they were like, well, there's these two schools that are open near your house. Uh, which one would you like to work? And I was like, 
is this how it goes when you apply for a job where you just kind of choose all the things you want and then get them? Wow. wow. Um, that's, we need special education teachers is the moral yeah. of the story. Perfect. Yeah. So when you fill out an application, what was missing? What you say in the next, oh, stop missing. Like what, what were they asking? Um, what, why are they missing? I think it was bureaucracy stuff. I really, it wasn't super important things, but it was a lot of that, like, you need to have this from your undergraduate. Like, my undergraduate was in music composition, yeah. and so I didn't have that kind of stuff. Mm. Or, you know, I can't really remember what it was, but I remember chunks of it not being there and me thinking, ooh, this is not good. <laughs> nice. Okay. And mentioning music, now, why did you study music in, as, uh, in college? Um... So I went into college thinking I was going to do pre-med because uh, my mom's a doctor and I volunteered in the emergency room and like did well in that setting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I found myself early on in college spending most of my time going to the music building and playing music with friends. Uh, like, every night we would stay there till like two in the morning playing music and I loved music and was like, you know, I've taken a couple music classes and was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I decided instead of a pre-med, I would just focus on music composition, mm. which was awesome. Cause I got to work with some really incredible composers. Like I feel very, very, very lucky to have gotten to even, you know, meet these people, let alone be their students for years. Yeah. And so you know, I, it's one of like, I just love that I got that experience, mm -hmm. but I definitely have not leveraged it into um, any sort of career or work. It's much mm -hmm. more just like a personal thing, mm -hmm. which is uh, perhaps not the most effective way to use your college degree, <laughs> but I, so I would not trade it for the world. Mm, I see. So why, why, why did you not try to like, leverage it into a somehow career? Um, Writing music is always like a very personal thing for me. Okay. It's just like, and I haven't gotten to write music in a long time, which is disappointing. And I'd like to build it back into my schedule. Mm. But every time I would write, it was much more about, you know, creating something from the inside of me. Like, what do I think is fascinating? What is something I'm passionate about? What are instruments that I think are beautiful or would go well together? And when I talked to, um, people about how you make money as a composer, it was a lot of times, unless you are in academia or you get really famous and are just a famous composer, which is really, really rare, especially since I was interested in the like very experimental avant-garde stuff. Mm. Um, the options were things like, you know, you write a bunch of jingles and you sell them to these databases and the databases store your jingles and then if someone ever purchases your jingle, you get royalty payments. Mm -hmm. So that didn't sound very appealing to me. Mm. And the other one is just to look for commission work where, you know, if someone wants a specific type of piece of music, they come to you and you kind of have to be well recognized enough to get called for commission work. Mm. And so it's a very small field with not a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And the stuff I was interested in didn't really fit into the opportunities that were there. Mm -hmm. So 
you say in the music very personal. Like when you yeah. writing your music, is very personal. Like what are you trying to express? How you feel, or what? What are you trying to achieve? I guess when you're writing your music. Like, so I I have a tendency to write um, what's called programmatic music, mm. which is music that like tells a story with sound. Mm. So, um, for example, you know, right after I graduated from college, I'm like in my early twenties, and that's always a very fraught time for people. Yeah. yeah. You know, thinking about my future and concerned about what's going to happen. And I have all these memories of like laying in bed and just kind of worrying about the future. And so like, I turned that into a piece of music and it's um, like I cast myself as the, the violin. That's who I was in the piece. Mm. And then um, I cast the piano as like my thoughts. Mm. And then, um, I cast the, the oboe, it's a trio for violin, piano, and oboe. And the yeah. oboe is kind of the negativity that comes in. Mm. So like the violin was written in um, the key of E, I want to say it's E major, maybe E minor, I'll have to look. Yeah. And then I, the piano was playing in, um, I want to say E Phrygian, which is one of the church modes, if you're familiar. No. You're not familiar with the church modes. It's a... <laughs> So it's like, it's similar to E major or E minor, but it's, um, it's got a slightly different scale. And so it still sounds kind of consonant. It still sounds nice, but it's got just like a little bit of dissonance in there. Yeah. And then I put the, um, oh, not the oboe, sorry, it's a bassoon. I put the bassoon in um, B flat, okay. which is a, a tritone off. Mm -hmm. And a, are you familiar with tritones? I don't know anything about music. <laughs> okay, so um, a, a tritone is exactly halfway between an octave. And from a physics perspective, the wave is like, it just doesn't fit in with the waveform of the other note. Oh, okay. There's lots of clashing, mm -hmm. and so it sounds really dissonant and bad. It's actually called a tritone, it was called the devil in the music. And it was, it was considered illegal for a while in the 1600s because it sounded so bad. Right. And so the bassoon would always just come in and like ruin whatever nice music was being made. Uh, the whole piece of music is this kind of back and forth between me as the violin and my thoughts and the piano. And the bassoon just comes in and wrecks the whole thing. And then it kind of like quiets back down. And then the violin starts a new theme and the piano starts to complement it and the bassoon comes back in and just wrecks the whole thing until there's this kind of big dramatic finish where it's all trying to sort itself out. So like, you know, that's how I would think about music. It's much more of these stories that are created through, you know, different musical tools. I see. What, what does the, the, what's the music, the devil, what's per zone? The tritone? Yeah, and the tritone, what does the tritone uh, represent in the story? Um, it's just kind of the dissonance of, you know, trying to lay there and go to sleep and then having like negative thoughts intrude into your mind and, you know, mess up your ability to sleep and make you worried and unhappy. Because ah. it, it, if you ever go and um, just look up a tritone online after this and you'll be like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> All, right. All right, I would do. So what... Uh, in that period of time, what were your worries, like, the, the negatives? Um, just a lot of like, what's gonna, what am I gonna do next? Like, mm -hmm. what are, where's my life going? Cause you know, I was in Little Rock and I was working for Tanner and teaching at Unity 
and I was, you know, starting my relationship with Ming and she was in Atlanta and I didn't know if I was going to stay in Little Rock or, you know, what was going to happen next in our relationship or like, you know, am I going to continue teaching martial arts here? Or like, it was just, there's a lot of uncertainty in life. Mm -hmm. And I was also, I'm always generally concerned about the environment. So that's kind of a consistent negative fear in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so how did you resolve that, the negatives at that time? Um, well, writing the music is really helpful. Mm -hmm. It just kind of puts it out somewhere for you. Yeah. And I think you just, like, I just kind of worked through it over time. Like mm -hmm. there was no moment where it's like, oh, I've solved all my problems. It was much yeah. more, like you just continue committing yourself to the things you think are valuable. Mm -hmm. And eventually you start to see like, okay, yes, like I'm making the right choices. The places I'm going in my life are the places I want to be. The mm -hmm. people I'm with and the work I'm doing are the people I want to see every day. And it's the work I want to be committing myself to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, I guess I'm curious, very curious about that. Cause right now I'm kind of going through similar situation kind of in a way, right? Try to find, <laughs> okay, figure out what I want to do next. What's my next you're gonna do you know gonna be uh you know income wise you know what the amount of money gonna come in you know like just like am i making the right decision to take a break like take a break not doing anything not having any income taking almost like a six month break or a year break but what was gonna happen right so that's why i'm yeah. like how did you like go through that period uh in your life right now how do you figure things out in the end right so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, um, I mean, I think the question I always bring myself back to is like, do I value what I'm doing or do I value where I'm going? Mm. And the other one is like, can I meet my needs? Is there food, water, and shelter? Yeah. Like, that's pretty essential. As long as you have those things, it's like what you're doing, is it something that you value and that brings you kind of a daily sense of well-being? Maybe not happiness and joy, just because like, you can't be happy and joyful every day of your life. Mm -hmm. But if you have a contentedness and a well-being with what you're doing, you know, I think that's valuable. Mm. If you're not sure what that is, I feel like you need to explore and be like, what makes me feel those things? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of my questions. Like, Cause I think one of my main problem for me is I don't know where I'm going. Uh huh. I don't know what's the direction to go into. So, <laughs> Did, how did you figure it out? I mean, I think the big thing for me, because, you know, right now I'm in a big state of transition. I'm moving from working as a public school teacher to going back to martial arts. And the thing that I keep coming back to is like, even as a public school teacher, I was consistently thinking about martial arts. Mm. And so it's like, what is the thing that keeps coming up in your mind? What is always there? And like, I'm always thinking of martial arts and I'm always thinking about, you know, nature and wilderness and the environment. And if these things are always coming up in my mind, they're important things that I should be following and tracking and looking into. Mm. And so, you know, if I can make those the things that also give me food, water, and shelter, that's really great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Sounds good. Um, mm -hmm. Last question about that would be, like, when you overwhelm, like, um, stress, like, under very all stress, like, what do you do to deal with that? Um, well, for the first time in my life, I, um, 
I called up a therapist and did some online therapy, or not online, but over the phone therapy, which was really helpful. Because mm. um, my therapist gave me some really solid strategies for how to make choices. Um, she was really big into, you know, making a list and like weighing the pros and cons and understanding that when you make hard choices, you're not going to be happy about them. Mm. And so that was really valuable. Just talking to somebody who from the outside could look at my experiences and kind of talk me through how to think about them. Mm. So I think that was super helpful in that process. Because when you get really stressed, it's just hard to think clearly. You're just like running from one thing to the next to the next. And so having someone be there to be like, let's take a step back. Let's look at the big picture. Let's diffuse our gaze. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, you see, I'll focus on one thing that's just going to stress yeah. you out. Right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so you never is – that, is, that, is that a hard decision like, to – to actually reach out to a therapist? Um, I don't know if it was a hard decision. I mean, I'm, I can have a little bit of a, like pride in being like, oh, I can totally handle my own feelings and all that. Yeah. But you know, things were so tough in the last six months, you know, mm -hmm. between the pandemic and work and, you know, everything that had been going on in my life that it was, Ming suggested it. And I was like, that's a really good idea. Like, you're totally right about that. I need to talk to somebody about this because I'm just like, having a hard time keeping up with all my thoughts and all the pressures that are going on. I see. Okay. Was uh, what were the hard choices that you were struggling with? And the biggest one was resigning from my job because mm. it, you know, yeah. there was the safety issue. Yeah, exactly. Which was a big component of it. And, but there's also like, I feel, I still feel kind of like I, you know, abandoned ship in the middle of a battle. Yeah. Everybody's out there, you know, trying to do their best for all these students and I'm stepping away and there's probably, you know, I don't know if someone's going to be able to replace me, but mm. there's a shortage of special ed teachers in the world and they're hard to come by. And so my position may be empty mm. and that's 20 something students who don't have a special ed teacher anymore mm. and you know I've built relationships with these students and now they won't have um, their teacher there and it's you know it's damaging to kids to lose stable adult figures in their lives mm -hmm. and so you know I had to weigh like my personal well-being and the well-being of you know the dojo and my family against my job and these students and my, um, my colleagues too. Cause you know, I work closely with my colleagues to try to help all these students out. Mm -hmm. And so like, that was really hard. That was a really tough choice to have to make. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that was what was so valuable about going to talk to this therapist was, you know, she said, understand when you make a hard choice, no matter what you choose, you're going to feel bad about it. Mm. And knowing that was really helpful because, you know, I made the choice and then I felt bad right away. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like, you know, you would feel that and be like, Oh no, I've made the wrong choice because you feel like you should make a choice and then feel good about it. Yeah. But in this instance, I was ready to feel bad. Like I knew it wasn't going to feel good to make this choice. Mm. It wasn't going to be like, ha ha, now I'm free. It was much yeah. more like, okay. 
there's two hard options here and I just have to pick one. Oh, wow. Actually, yeah, and that's, that's very helpful to, and it's personal to me, right? I guess I, I never realized that, that when you're making these choices, sometimes, you know, any choice you make is going to be, uh, you're going to feel bad about it. Yeah, yeah which, which is lame. Like, it's not a fun place to be. Like, all right, I have two paths, and they're both full of spikes. <laughs> but, um, but it is helpful mentally and emotionally to know that that's what's going to be yeah. in your future. Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of a quote that I heard recently called, uh, easy choice, easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I think wow. that's, from, that's from Tim Ferriss, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you got it from someone else, but yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Talking about school again is like learning, right? How do you approach learning? Like when you like maybe, because you, I feel like you learn, you have learned, like you are learning, you have learned and learning so much skills right now. Now you got, you know, barbell in three different styles and you know, you know, you know, all the music stuff. And so how do you approach learning when you learn like something new? Um, but I think the main thing that stays true across all types of learning is yeah. the importance of repeated practice. Mm. Like there's nothing out there in the world that you can learn that doesn't require repeated practice. Okay. And doing it and doing it and doing it over and over and over again. Mm. But also understanding that that doesn't mean doing it for two hours once a week. It's like doing something for 10 minutes every day of the week is probably better than doing it for three hours one day a week. Mm. Your total time spent on it is less, but if you're just consistently pushing at it, just that consistent push is gonna help you grow faster than mm. just one big concerted effort. Uh, okay, so how do you, how do you learn a kata, that new kata? Do you break it down that you know what you teach or do you do something else? Um, I break it down. Mm. Like I'll, my goal is usually to get the whole thing down and I'll run through it kind of quickly mm. just to memorize all the movements. Mm -hmm. So I use shaping as my first step. Like I get the whole thing down just poorly. Yeah. And then once I've kind of got the whole thing down, I try to go piece by piece and I'll be like, these three moves, I'm going to do them over and over and over and over and over again and figure out how I like to do them. Like what feels strong? How do I use my body in these ways? Mm. And I go to the next one and do the next three things over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. And that's kind of um, the biggest thing. And then if I find a move that feels weak, that I can't figure out how to make it good, mm -hmm. I try to search for alternative training methods. So like in um, Double Tambo 2, which is one of my test cutters right now, <laughs> there's a move where um, – you jab, you have a tambo and yin grip and a tambo and yang. Yeah. You jab backwards with the yin and forwards with the yang. And like the jab back and yin, I was just like, what in the world? Like, I just cannot make this anything other than this like goofy little woo swing. And we have a bunch of uh, tires outside at the dojo bolted to posts, big old four by four sunk into the ground, mm -hmm. which are for hitting with sticks. And so I went outside and got up near one of the tires and was doing this uh, yin stab backwards to the tire. Mm -hmm. And I did that, you know, 20 or 30 times and it just clicked. I was like, that's how you make that strong. Mm -hmm. Like once I actually had to put power into the technique to hit something with force, 
my body was like, okay, we need your hips to do this. And you got to sink into your legs this way. That's how you get forced into that technique. Mm. And once I'd done that, then when I did the kata, it made perfect sense how it was done. Mm. But I needed to have that physical, tactile response of hitting something before I could understand how I should move when I did the kata. Mm. Okay. Which I have, that's really helpful. All right. Have you, uh, how do you learn something that you might not be able to break it down somehow? And I, I feel like a lot of techniques, like maybe Aikido, and like bend wrist, or like maybe a Tai Chi movement, right? Some mm-hmm. stuff. Now, just curious, now how would you approach, like, maybe have you ever encountered or struggled with something that you don't know how to break it down? Now, how do you approach those? Um, well, in terms of things that go with a partner, like um, the Aikido stuff, it's that I think repetition with a partner is key. Mm. And one of the most helpful things in the world, and this is hard to find, is repetition with a partner who knows the technique. Mm. And when they know the technique, they know when you're doing it effectively against them. Mm. And so they're not resisting you per se, but they're not going with you unless they can feel you doing it correctly. Mm. But this requires your partner to have a really deep knowledge of the technique. So you're, you know, unless you have really skilled partners, it's harder to do. Mm-hmm. But it's a thing that you kind of want to build up in your students and your partners. Because, like, let's say someone's trying to do bent wrist to me. Yeah. I know what it feels like to have someone do a strong bent wrist to me. And I'm not going to move until you've taken my balance and correctly applied the technique. Mm-hmm. So you have this direct response where you know if it's successful against me because you'll see it working. Mm-hmm. And when it's not working, I just get to stand there and kind of grin at you like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, I think that's the best way to learn those techniques, but it also, again, it just requires that partner who knows what it should feel like. Okay. Awesome. All right. Cool. So now I think well, I want to transition back to your life a little bit. Adventures. So mm-hmm. during the summer shoot, I know one year you went to Nepal, right? Yeah. What What did you do there? Um, I hiked the Annapurna Circuit which okay. is like a 120 mile trail that starts um, in this little town called, um, what, was, what was the name of that town? Bessie Sahar. Okay. And you hike up into the Himalayas and around and then back down the other side. And it's um, the vertical gain is huge. You started around 3000 feet above sea level and the highest point was um, almost 18,000 feet above sea level. Okay. A lot of up and then a whole lot of down on the other side and me and my cousin went and it was it was so much fun I loved it because I love being out in um, huge mountains like mountains are one of my favorite things in the world uh, I had never in my life seen mountains like the Himalayas like so the, the thing that sticks with me there was this one day where um, we were around 10 or 11,000 feet and I think I said the word wow every five minutes. I was just like, wow, wow, wow. Because <laughs> we're, you know, we're in this valley. Yeah. Um, and we're, we've just gone kind of behind the um, Annapurna Mastiff. And the Mastiff is like the series of peaks that make up the um, Annapurna Range. Yeah. And Annapurna is the 10th um, tallest mountain in the world. 
Mm. And it's the deadliest mountain in the world, which we did not climb it because we are not, <laughs> not trying to die. But um, it's over 8,000 meters. It's like 26,000 feet tall. Mm. So we're at 10,000 feet. And from where we're standing, you can see this continuous slope that goes all the way up to the peak. That's at 26,000 feet. Yeah. And I stood there and had this moment of recognition where I was like, the distance from where I'm standing to the top of that mountain, which I can see the whole thing from where I am at, is taller than the Rocky Mountains are above sea level. Oh, wow. And the Rocky Mountains only start at around five or 6,000 feet up. So like from the ocean to the peak of the Rockies is not as high as where I'm standing to that place one mile or two miles away. That's, and that's where you want to go, right? That's your destination? No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, we, we went around that and kind of at the lowest point you pass over this. Really, I mean, it's still really high, but it's not like that. Gotcha. You need serious technical mountaineering skills and like supplemental oxygen and ice axes and all that stuff. Yeah, I think I just watched a documentary, Meru. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the one where they climb the shark's fin, right? Yeah, yeah. And that guy has like a stroke on the way up and then they just yeah. keep climbing. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to take on that next? <laughs> no, no, gosh. Actually, um, it's funny you talk about adventures because I just got back from an adventure a couple days ago. Yeah. And um, my friend Sensei George here in uh, Little Rock, we like to do a lot of bushwhacking out in the Ozarks. Where, you know, you know, bushwhacking is where you go off the trail and you're just kind of out in the wilderness. Oh, okay. And we just, we bit off more than we could chew. Mm -hmm. misjudged our route and we ended up in this like slot canyon and it was looking like it was going to rain soon and these canyons when it rains they have flash floods they go from like no water to a raging river in a couple minutes mm -hmm. and so if you're in there it will kill you like and there have been people who were killed in arkansas in these canyons yeah and so we're kind of freaking out because we're in this canyon we need to get out of it but we didn't realize where we had hiked to, there's not really a way out that's easy. Mm -hmm. And so there was this very scary 20 minutes where we're like scrambling up the side of this really steep canyon, trying to get out with our heavy packs so that we don't get washed away. Mm -hmm. And it, was tur it turned out okay. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of fear on my part, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of sweating and struggling. We, um, it got so steep that we actually had to tie ropes to our packs and we'd climb up and then haul the packs up with the ropes and then climb up and haul the packs up because we couldn't do it with the packs on our back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I'll never do that again. You never do that again? <laughs> not, not like that. That was yeah. too much. Got you, got you. So um, how do you prepare for stuff like that? Like, uh, is, that is that a lot of preparation? Like, for example, I guess... Right now, I've never done anything like that before. So I'm just like, how will I prepare for it? Do I jump into it right away? I, I feel that, that would be a bad idea. Yes. You don't want to jump right into it. Um, you know, I usually spend a lot of time looking at maps and kind of mapping out routes mm. and seeing, you know, what do I want to see and how do we go there? Mm. And then you plan out all your gear. Mm. So you make sure you have the appropriate, you know, since it's wintertime, we had to bring cold weather gear, like gloves and thick jackets and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you want to identify your escape routes and you want to identify um, like who is the kind of 
like who would come save you if things went wrong? Who do you call first? Yeah. And then you leave your itinerary with people at home. So like, you know, I sent Ming and George sent uh, his people the list of this is where we're going to be. These are what our plans are. Um, if we're not back at this time, you're going to call these people, like the, the sheriff department for this county, and you're going to let them know that we went missing, and this is where we're going to be. Mm. And so you, you just want to have contingency plans for everything. Okay, okay, nice. Not because like you're going to get lost all the time, or not because you're always going to be getting in dangerous situations and needing to be rescued, but in that one case that you do, you want to have the whole rescue planned out already. Mm. And I just like, yeah. okay, they didn't, they didn't check this box. Time to call the people who need to come save them. Yeah. And they know, okay, they're going to go on. Like our search area is this area only. And yeah. we know where to look and we know where it's the most dangerous. And we can look there first. Uh, what other adventures night have you gone on? Like besides uh, Nepal and then what other place have you been? Um, I've done lots of backpacking in the Ozarks which is really fun. There's lots of bushwhacking here and getting out there. Okay. I had a really nasty run in with a whole lot of ticks last summer. Yeah. Um, that was <laughs> fun. So you shouldn't go backpacking in the summer in Arkansas because there's so many ticks. Okay. I, right. I think I got over a hundred um, tick bites. Ah, uh, okay. All right. So, so, so that's a lot of suffering in this kind of like adventuring. Yeah, there's a, something called Type 2 Fun, which I'm a big fan of. Type 2 Fun is fun that's not fun at the time, but it's really fun to talk about and relive later. Got you. So what's the goal of these adventures? Like, um, is it because so you can talk about it later? Uh, the stories are a part of it. I, I do love telling stories about adventures. That's really fun. Okay. Um, the other thing is I really love being out in nature and I love the feeling of um, experiencing the change in the land as you move through it. Mm. So the trip in Nepal was so amazing for me because you start out in the rainforest mm. and as you hike up and up and up, there's these fundamental changes in the vegetation and the geography and in the animals and all this stuff. So it goes from rainforest to temperate forest and then you get above the temperate forest and you get into this alpine environment that's all conifers. And then you get above the tree line and you're into these like high alpine pastures and meadows. And then you get above the vegetation line and it's just rocks and barren emptiness. Mm. And to walk through it and to be able to kind of feel the difference day to day and see the way things change like that is really fascinating to me. Oh, okay. Nice. You get a similar feel when you um, go bushwhacking because like when you follow a trail, people set trails and they usually set it in the easiest way or the way that goes to see the prettiest things. Mm. When you bushwhack, you get a feel of like water has eroded this area in this way. Mm. And it's going to allow me to traverse it like this. Like you have to obey the land based on how the land forms itself. Mm. And so you feel very connected with the land as you move okay. through it when you're not on a trail, when you're just out in the wilderness. Okay. Okay. All right. So Nepal, the hike, how, how far, how long, how far was it? How many miles? Um, it was like 120 miles. Okay. It took us about three weeks to do it all. Oh, wow. We had to go real slow because the altitude gets so high that, um, you know, it's, 
it gets dangerous if you're just like, yeah. If you just keep going, you can get altitude sickness, and you don't want that. Was it covered by snow? Yes, the very oh. top was very snowy. Oh wow! And then, what about the people along the way? Do you meet a lot of people along the way? Or yeah, um, the the hike itself, you yeah. meet lots of other hikers. Like it's a very popular route, so we met a lot of people from all over the world, which was cool. Mm. But I think my favorite thing was after the hike, we went down to this um, city called Pokra. Yeah, we were staying by this lake. And we're walking down the main strip, and there's a sign that says Lake Breeze Gym, um, Karate, MMA, Weightlifting. All right. Okay. Yeah. So we spent a week in that city, and so every day of that week, I went to train at the Lake Breeze Gym, and uh -huh. the guy who ran it was the um, he had won the All Nepal Kickboxing Championship in like 2006, mm. and so he's this really really buff little guy who's like a incredible fighter yeah and just really fast and had great kicks mm. and so i i trained with him for that whole week which was really fun mm -hmm. and i picked up um he taught me how to do a jump spin back kick mm -hmm. really well oh. like from you know jab range so if you're close enough to hit somebody mm -hmm. from a foot and a half away mm -hmm. then you simply do a jump spin back kick yeah. from the same range and it's just shocking you're like whoa why is this person jumping, but the kick is so fast and powerful? I was, I was very happy to pick that up from him. So, speaking of that kick, that's not kidding that I'm actually working, trying to work on right now, like focusing. Like, so what, what, what did you pick up from him that, to improve that? Uh, the big thing was to cover up the setup. So it would be like, you know, you throw a cross and you throw a jab. Yeah. And a jab is turning your body. So if I'm throwing a left jab, my left shoulder is moving forwards. I'm pivoting on my left front foot. That sets up the rotation to throw that right kick as you spin. Mm. So you use the jab to set up your spin. And if you jab and sink into your knees, you've now set up your jump as well. Mm. So you hit in the beginning of your spin and your jump with a punch. Mm. And suddenly as you pull your punch in, you're jumping and spinning. Oh, okay. And that's, that was the way that I was able to do it the fastest. Okay. Oh, nice. Uh, one, thing, uh, one thing I practice is like spinning back kick. Like, I feel like if I practice on a back, I feel like if I miss kick the back, I might going to twist my ankle or something. So how do you practice that kick like, uh, safely? Um, like... Are you jumping or are you just staying standing? Jumping, right? I'm just uh, spinning back kick, right? If I try to practice in the back, yeah, jumping, right? I feel like jumping that could be the most dangerous if you not kicking the back properly. Like if sometimes I feel like if I kick it, kick in, kick it in the wrong angle, I just I just spin the back, and then I feel like I might dislocate my ankle or somehow. The one you're landing on, or the one that's kicking the bag? The one that's kicking. Oh yeah, um. If you miss kick a bag, it's you're right. You can definitely hurt your ankles. Oh, so yeah. So how do you practice this safely like, on a bag, or maybe you don't practice on a bag at all? Um, I mostly practice that one on the bag. Okay. The key, I think, would be to look at it first. Mm -hmm. So if your eyes aren't on the target, you don't kick. Like you have to look at it before you kick. Yeah. Um, when you spin, you kind of lose it, right? But you, when you spin, do a spin kick, like. You can really. The key to your all the spin kicks is looking first. 
All your spin kicks will get way better if you lock your eyes on target. Okay. So like, I'm going to kick. I need to, you know, start to spin, lock my eyes on target, and then throw the kick. Oh, so you actually turn around and look before you actually kick it. Yes. Uh, and that'll, because then you won't have to worry about missing the bag because you can see it. Uh, and oh. that, um, that's why I, on my Nidon test, I missed my spin side kick break because yeah. I tried to kick without looking. Uh, and since Tanner had been telling me, like, the most important thing is to look, the most important thing is to look, and I was like, all right, I'm going to look, and then I threw it without looking, and I missed it. I was like, oh, come on. Awesome, awesome. All right, now that's another new thing, Andy. Thank you for, for that. Man. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to work on that. So I know we have only a few minutes left, so just a couple closing questions, even though I still have so many questions I can ask you about. So. Hey. This guest bedroom is still open. Just let this pandemic pass and then come on and visit. All right, all right. So um, just a quick question about books. Now, uh, what's, your, what's the book that you most recommended to, to people? Ooh, most recommended book. It depends on what they're interested in. Because yeah. you know, there's books that I love and then there's books that I think are valuable for different things. I see. Well, what, what do you love? What, which book do you love? Lord of the Rings. You got to read the Lord of the Rings. Okay. I've read it like five times all the way through. Ah, why do you, why do you love it? Um, I mean, I grew up reading it. Like my mom read it to me and then I read it again. And then, you know, when the movies were going to come out, I read it again. Mm. And then me and my mom sat down and read the Silmarillion together, which is like the history of the Lord of the Rings. It kind of reads like a very dull history textbook. Yeah. And so we like printed out all the genealogies and like would track who the characters were. It was a whole thing. So like uh, Lord of the Rings was just a huge part of my childhood. Oh, nice. You were doing it with your mom as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. it, was, it was a very fun family thing that we did. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like it's a good idea for other people to do as well. So uh, last two questions. Uh, what's, if you could undo a pre previous decision you made in your life, what would it be? Hmm. Undo a previous decision. You know, I don't know if I would because, you know, if you never know what the cascading effects of any decision you undo is. Mm, yeah. Like what you think could be a small thing or could be this really negative inflection point in your life could actually have been the reason that things are going well right now. Mm. And so I think it's just, it's too great of a risk to say, this is what I would want to change because you may lose the things that you love having now because you changed something that you thought was bad. Yeah. Okay. Is there any decision that you learn a lot from? A lot. I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and I've learned a whole lot from them. What's um, what's a good one that I learned from? I would say I I learned a lot about myself every time I've gone through a um a tough breakup. I've learned about kind of who I am and what I'm supposed to value and what mistakes I made. I no matter which direction the breakup went in, I always try to pull like what was I doing that was bad or what didn't work about this? What did I not bring to the equation or what did I do incorrectly? Mm. Like how can I improve myself in the future? Uh, 
So what's the most valuable improvement that you have uh, done? Um, I think the most valuable improvement. I'm asking hard questions. Most valuable improvement. The selfish question as well, because I want to learn from that. <laughs> <laughs> so I can implement it on myself. Um, probably how important it is to be willing to forgive people. Because mm. like there were some relationships I had in high school where I made a lot of really stupid mistakes. Mm. And people forgave me for those really stupid mistakes. Mm. I try to carry that forward in understanding like if someone wrongs me or mm. says, does something really bad or you know, maybe something that seems cruel or you know, any other thing that would hurt me, I'm very willing to try to understand their position. Like what is it that made them do this that has hurt me in some way? Mm. And I should be willing to forgive them if they're willing just to come to the table and talk about it. Mm. Now, certainly if someone is being mean and trying to take advantage of me, I'm just going to cut them out of my life. Yeah, but yeah. if someone is, is willing just to come to the table and talk about it, yeah. I should be willing to forgive them because I've been forgiven in the past and I should pass that forward. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. And that's a, that's a good lesson for me as well, as well. So, um, Last question would be, if you, put a, uh, if, you, if you can put a word or message on a dojo window, you know, uh, mm -hmm. could be some issue, could be in the one in unity, like outside the window for maybe people driving by to see, like what would that be? Hmm. It's tough. Because there's a lot of things I think are really important ideas, but I think people see them a lot. And if you see an idea you've seen a thousand times, you, um, it doesn't have a lot of effect. Because mm. like, I really value critical thinking. Mm. But if you, you should put a sign up that says, like, think critically, people will be like, okay, and just kind of drive on by. So I want something that would make people think. Let me craft this idea. I think I would put the question um, what do you value most? Because mm. it's not a question that gets asked a lot and it would just make people kind of stop and be like, what do I value most? Because mm. it's just such a deep question. And when you know the answer to it, it's really easy to make choices about your life. And you're like, this is the thing I value. I should kind of move out from that. Yeah. Although I don't know how many people would then come into the dojo and be like, <laughs> not a great advertising strategy, but a good way to get people to think. Yeah, you never know. So what do you value most? Mm. What do I value most? There's a couple core things. Um, one is the well-being and the happiness of my family and the people who are close to me. Mm -hmm. um, another one is the environment. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Another one is kind of preserving my sense of joy and wonder in the world. Mm. Nice. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So yeah. you're Those talking are... about, yeah. Go, go ahead. Um, so how do you preserve the joy and wonder? Um, try to stave off cynicism mm. and be willing to look at things and just be amazed and impressed by them. Mm. And, you know, I, I think a lot about things and I think critically about them and I can sometimes get too caught up in like, oh yeah, I know what that's about or I understand this or I get what you're trying to do there as opposed to just being like, wow, that's cool. You put a lot of effort into that and that's amazing. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like nature so much is because it never ceases to wow me. Like I got some, on my recent adventure, I got some pretty good wows. Right? Uh, like, wow. Uh, I love that feeling of the wow. Okay, okay. I, sh I should do that more then because I actually never really done any kind of adventuring, like uh, traveling, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's, that's something that I feel like I should start doing it a lot more mm -hmm. as well. I will, I will ask you more um, tips on how to do that. In the Absolutely. I'm always ready to adventure with people. Although it doesn't have to be nature. You know, some people aren't wowed by nature. They're wowed by, you know, human achievement or art or... Uh... Yeah. Personally, I want to do... Uh, have you heard of the Camino de Santiago? Um, is that in Patagonia? I, I think it's in, in the Spain. Uh, okay. There's a pilgrimers like from France okay. to Spain. It's about 300 miles or something that like people walk night for like just a pilgrimage, right? Uh -huh. So I really want to do that because I'm really interested in like, talking to the people that I meet, going to meet along the way and ask them why they do that, stuff like that. So just mm -hmm. anyway, so yeah, for me, it's more about, I guess, people kind of in a way, more than like nature. Yeah, you should definitely do that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Now you interview them all like this too and you have a whole interview series. Yeah, for me, it's also about how to basically learning how to ask better questions. And that's why I might try to get better as well. Well, you're asking really good questions right now. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, okay, I got to stop and really dig in and think about this. All right. So I, I so you talking, you mentioned critical thinking. Like what, what does critical, critical thinking means to you? Um, critical thinking is like, you know, just trying to understand all the different facets that went into something, like whether it's a person or a piece of art or the news. I mean, I think it's, it's really easy right now to look at it on the news because like I obviously have some pretty strong um, political persuasions, mm. but I take, I make a point to go and read the news of people who disagree with me and then try to empathize and understand like, what is their home life like? What is their community like that one makes them go to this new source and two makes them believe and understand these things. Mm. And when you think critically about something like that, you humanize people. Mm. It's the, one of the most dangerous things in history is dehumanization. Like when people become dehumanized, it sets up the avenue for people to commit terrible atrocities. Mm, yeah. And if you think critically about the people around you and realize they're humans with wants and needs and people they love and things they care about, it's way harder to dehumanize them. They become a person and not an idea or a label. Yeah. And you really have to dig deep and look at the whole picture to start that process of humanizing people. Ah, uh, yeah. That, that kind of reminds me of the book, Hillbilly Allergy. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I think reading that kind of stuff helps you do that. 
it gives you more perspectives to empathize with. Yeah. Okay. So how how would you teach that critical thinking like to other people? I don't know. You know, it's you know my it's like a much higher order thinking skill. So I didn't get to do very much of it in elementary school. Uh, um, I think, I mean, it's tough because if you try to challenge people's notion, like if you have an opinion and I challenge it, then we're just going to butt heads and fight about it. Yeah. Um, I think you have to do it much more through examples and letting people realize it. Mm. But I'm also not very skilled at, like I don't have a lot of experience teaching critical thinking. So I wouldn't say that, I'm a good critical thinking teacher. Mm-hmm. I think I'd want, to, I'd want to find somebody who already teaches it and have them explain how you teach it more so than how I would. Okay. All right. So, okay. Stay tuned. In the future, maybe we'll, yeah, once you learn how to teach them, you can come exactly. back. Exactly. I'll track down some professor somewhere and have them explain how to do it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I think that's a, that's a good place to, I think I already took uh, over time. So... <laughs> Well, it's been really fun. This is great, Shu. I love what you're doing here. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time, and I let you get back to your 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 weekend. All right. Well, I'll see you later.